The following podcast is brought to you by the Bridge Bible Church in Somerset, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit our website at thebridgewire.com. Well, it's good to be with you this morning, and uh, it's always good to uh, get back in the pulpit after kind of a long layoff. Uh, actually, it's nice that it's not a one-and-done, uh, because uh, I'm able to kind of bring a little bit of a series. Um, I'm used to big pulpits. You know, when I started, the pulpit that I had was about this big, and uh, it's a little different these days with music stands and everything else. Oh, that'll work. So if you want, uh, take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, and happy Mother's Day to all you. Uh, When I left this morning, my wife uh, informed me that our oldest granddaughter had a baby girl this morning at 4 a.m., so, all right. Our first first grandchild, our great-grandchild, I should say, we have 14 grandchildren. My wife and I were busy, and... uh, so anyway, uh, Matthew 9, verse uh, 35. And I guess uh, the, book, the passage is up on the screen, and uh, I read from the ESV. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel to the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Um, I have an outline. I'm low tech, okay, so I still use paper uh, instead of PowerPoints, Uh, although I will have some PowerPoint stuff next week for all those who are high tech. I used to try a PowerPoint, and then I found that it just was too complex because I have a tendency to to go off script a little bit, and the PowerPoint person uh, made them too nervous. So, um, so uh, we're going to talk a little bit about outreach this morning, and it's interesting that 60% of churches in the United States are declining. In fact, if you heard the news this week, I think the Southern Baptist Convention lost 457,000 members in 2022. Now, I don't know all the reasons for that, but I call it the dying sheep or the leaving sheep. You know, uh, those of us who are older, the dying part we can understand. The leaving sheep, a little different, you know, leaving sheep. 30% of churches are growing through what I call the shifting sheep. That is to say, uh, the sheep are moving from one church to the next because they've left the churches where some of them are dying and are now going to the churches that are, have, somewhat, uh, have life. Only 10% of the church is growing through what I call birthing sheep, that is to say, through evangelism. Now, there are a lot of reasons why that is the case. I'm not going to go into all of them, but I think a lot of it is what I call that we get so busy doing church stuff that we forget to do the stuff of the church, or too busy doing the work of the church instead of doing what God has called us to work at. I am a coach in the Billy Graham Association Church Evangelism Institute where we take churches through a two-year process of learning how to do evangelism. That is an unabashed plug, by the way. Uh, Take it for what it's worth. 
And uh, so we take churches through what it is like to become retrained in how to do evangelism, to get kind of back on track uh, in that area. Um, there's a lot of reasons why people don't reach out to their neighbors, their friends, their relatives, and so forth. I think some of it is that we have the idea that people just don't want to respond. Uh, people are resistant, they're uninterested, they're antagonistic. And so when we talk about evangelism, most often what happens when people hear that word, all kinds of mental ideas crop up in their heads, and they get very anxious about that. And next week I'm going to share a little bit of how you can become less anxious in reaching out. And that's why one and done is not so good. I can kind of follow up on some things. But Jesus said in this text that the harvest is plentiful, that there is a bumper crop to be had. Now, there are people that are resistant, uh, but oftentimes the resistance falls away over a period of time. Think of the number of atheists that have become Christians. C.S. Lewis was an atheist. Lee Strobel was an atheist. Josh McDowell, I don't know if you've heard of him, a great apologist. Uh, we had him on campus back in the 1970s. That's a long time ago. He was an atheist. A guy by the name of Craig Keener, probably one of the foremost New Testament scholars today, was an atheist. Francis Collins, the uh, head of the Genome Project, was an atheist. And in fact, uh, one of my wife and I's good friends, uh, he was an atheist. At least, he, no, he was. It took us a couple years to see God work in his heart to come to faith. But it was fun to see him come to faith as an atheist. When Jesus sends out this message to his disciples, he's doing it within the context of sending out the twelve. And he says, I want you to go out with a different attitude about the crowd that you're going to reach. Don't go out with a pessimistic attitude that they're not going to respond, but go out with an optimistic attitude that the harvest is plentiful. Later in Luke, when he sends out the 70, he says the same thing. And also he says relatively the same thing when his disciples were with the Samaritans. And they were wondering why he was there sharing the way he was. And so Jesus wants us to have an optimistic attitude, an optimistic assessment of the crowd that is out there that aren't people of faith. And he wants us to go out there with that positive attitude to motivate us to reach our neighbors. Now the first thing we need to do, and this is where the outline comes in, and so by the way, my wife loved outlines when our kids were young because they could tell me, tell her, uh, my kids exactly where I was and they knew when I was about to be done. So that was a blessing. <laughs> anyway. Um, but the first thing that Jesus had, he saw the crowd and he had compassion on them. He had compassion. Now, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on the Greek word there, but it means to be deeply affected within, with an, for an empathy and a sympathy for where the people are at spiritually. Anheuser-Busch kind of stepped in it a little bit, didn't they? Uh, with the uh, whole transgender on uh, the beer can thing. And it caused all kinds of individuals to sort of be raised up in a kind of a revulsion about the whole picture. And I got to thinking about that a little bit, and I can understand the uh, reaction uh, but I always got to thinking, well, what happens if we had a transgender person move next to us as a neighbor? Would we respond in that same kind of revulsion? Or would we respond 
with compassion and have that neighbor over for a meal? How would we respond? Jesus would never respond with revulsion. Rather, he would respond with compassion. A couple of years into our church plant in Door County, one of the people in our church said, well, hey, would it be okay if we invited a gay couple to church? I said, absolutely. I was a little bit more surprised that she had to ask. Kind of disappointed to a certain degree. Jesus never responded with revulsion, but with compassion. Why? Because he saw the crowd as being harassed. Harassed. The word there can also mean grievously afflicted, torn, disheveled, weary. He saw them harassed. Now what were they harassed by? I'm, I'm sure that wasn't because of the Romans so much. But he saw them in their spiritual condition as people slaves to sin, captivated in captivity to their sinful nature. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Romans 6, for when we were slaves to sin, you were free. I like this. When you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you didn't have the ability to do it. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? How can you who are, know how to do, can you who do evil know how to do good? The answer is, of course, no. Paul says, I know nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. Now, theologians call that total depravity. Total depravity doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be, thankfully. Although sometimes you kind of wonder. It just means that every part of our being, our minds, our emotions, our wills, our bodies, are fallen. They're fallen and captive to sin, that rebellion against God. In fact, Paul says... Later is that there's none that's righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, no one does good, no one, not one. So there's this captivity to the sinful nature where people who are lost can't seem to figure out and get free from, even if they wanted to. By themselves, they can't. Also, we have to see people around us as being harassed by the powers of darkness. Oftentimes we don't think about that spiritual world out there that captivates people in their sin. But Paul says, at one time you were dead, now he's talking to believers here, but you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you walked, following the course of this world, following the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in those who are the sons of disobedience. So there is this spiritual world out there. I don't know if you've ever read the books, This Present Darkness. Anybody read those books? Those were popular a long time ago. Kind of gives you a different flavor, doesn't it, of the, the, the unseen world that's out there. I remember I had a, uh, probably the only lecture I ever remember from my systematic theology course when I was in seminary. But I remember the professor, Clarence Bass, was, we were talking about demonology. And he was doing a paper of, or a book on it, and he was doing some research, and so he went to Africa, and he went with a great deal of skepticism about the whole aspect of demonology until he saw people during a church service levitate <laughs> during the church service as they were doing exorcisms. And he said, during that moment, my worldview shifted significantly. You see? And so we have to understand that now, you've got to be careful. We don't want to see a demon behind every rock. And as the old uh, comedian says, well, the devil made me do it. Remember that one? That was a long time. That really dates me. Sorry. Um, but, uh, 
But we have to see that as part of where people are at spiritually. They are, as Jesus says, not only harassed, but helpless. Helpless. To try to ask people who are deeply enslaved to sin, deceived by the power of darkness, to do what is right, is like asking them to change the color of their skin. They're harassed. They're helpless. And so when we see somebody who is caught in, say, gender dysphoria or homosexuality or these kinds of practices, we've got to understand that they can't do what is right. They can't free themselves from those things. We should not be surprised that the world is the way it is. We should be surprised that the world isn't worse than it is. And so it's important for us, then, when we see the world around, that they are like sheep without a shepherd. They are like sheep without a shepherd. Now, Jesus, when he says that, I think is taking a little bit of a dig at the supposed shepherds of his day, which were supposed to be the Pharisees and the scribes, because instead of freeing people from their sin and keeping them away from unrighteousness and helping them to lead a godly life, Jesus says, you are like people who make people twice as fit for hell as yourselves. And we see that today. We see all kinds of false shepherds out there. Now, when I was a kid, and I had my kids growing up, we didn't have the internet. Thank God we didn't have the internet, because there's more garbage on the internet than there is good stuff, it seems like. And so people can go on the internet and find all kinds of false teachers and false shepherds and everything else. And so you can imagine sheep without a shepherd along with the internet how much trouble they can get into. Sheep without a shepherd are also left to fend for themselves. And, and there's one thing about sheep. They are dumb animals. My first church was in rural South Dakota. It was so rural we could look out the window of our, of our uh, kitchen and watch cows bear their calves. That was pretty cool, by the way. There was a vet, everybody in the church was a farmer or had been a farmer or worked with farming, and we had one guy in the church who was a vet, and he always told me, the only good sheep is a dead sheep. Can't do anything with it. When sheep get sick, it's like, eh, not much to do for them. Just dig a hole, because they'll probably not live, no matter what you do. But sheep without a shepherd, well, you know, I did a little research on sheep, and I didn't know this, but sheep, when they start to move, go like this. They wind around because they're looking forward and they're looking backward and they can't keep on a straight track. They just keep winding around. And sheep are so dumb that if one falls off a cliff, they'll all follow with them. You'd think of sheep in a flock that could fend off a wolf, but sheep are kind of helpless. A wolf, a flock, easy pickings. Like sheep without a shepherd. And so when we see people around us, we need to see them in their plight as being harassed and helpless, sheep without a shepherd, winding around, going off a cliff, and hopeless, without God and without hope. Yet, all of that, you think, well, these people would never respond. But Jesus says, wait a second, guys. You look at the crowd and understand that this is not the way you think it should be. Rather, the harvest is plentiful, 
the laborers are few, pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest send out laborers into the harvest field. Because they will respond, and they will respond plentifully if we get the message to them. Now, it's interesting when you look at the book of Acts, we can kind of see that sort of occurring. So on the first day of Peter preaching the gospel, how many people responded? What, some 3,000. Can you imagine that? 3,000 in one day being baptized? That must have been some baptismal service. Acts 2.47, it says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts 4.4, But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came were about 5,000. That's just men, not men and women. Acts 5.14, And more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes, both men and women. Acts 6.1, Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, Acts 6.7, And the word of the Lord continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And so the early church was this multiplying, growing, dynamic, adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Even the priests and the Pharisees were coming to faith. People that crucified Jesus were coming to faith. Resistant to Jesus, every step of the way came to faith. The harvest was plentiful. You know who the fastest growing, where the fastest growing church in the world is right now? Anybody know? Iran. Iran is today is the fastest growing church. In about 20, about early 2000s, there were about 5,000 to 10,000 Muslims that came to faith. Today, there are about 800,000 to a million. Church is growing leaps and bounds. I read one article, uh, they, they plant house churches and they, they win a few people to Christ, they train them how to share their faith and they just send them out. And people are coming to faith in droves. A nation once resistant is now growing and responding to the gospel. The Church Evangelism Institute, which I am part of, the first, one of the first churches that took part in it was a fairly large church in northern Minnesota, seven, eight hundred people, and it's a two-year process that they go through. And the first year they said, well, we're going to trust God for 50 baptisms this next year, 50 new people being baptized. Instead of 50, they had 150. The next year, instead of 150, they had 250. You know, the gospel hasn't changed. People are still ready to respond as they've always been ready to respond. But we just simply need to get out there. Not only that, but they're ready and eager to respond. In John 6.45, or 4.35, it says, Do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Now, the context of that verse is the woman that Jesus talked to at the, the well, the Samaritan woman. And he goes to the crowds of the Samaritans, and Jesus is wondering, the disciples are wondering, what in the world, Jesus, are you doing here? The Samaritans, you know, you know these people are, you know, cast-offs, cast-off Jews. Uh, we don't want to have anything to do with Samaritans. And, uh, and Jesus there, and he says to them, you know what, you're looking at the Samaritans with stingy eyes. You think, well, we need four months to work. Well, I'm telling you, look, we don't need four months. 
the harvest is plentiful. It's, it's ready to go. These people who are Samaritans, who you think are castoffs, are ready to see and believe in the gospel. It's white unto harvest. Barna, of course, I don't know if you've heard of George Barna. He's a research, uh, well, of course, Barna has sold it, the Barna Group now. In October 2022, they surveyed 2,000 adults. Three out of four say they want to grow spiritually. Can you imagine that? Three out of four. I just read in the Wall Street Journal, quote, a greater share of young adults say they believe in a higher power of God. About one-third of 18 to 25-year-olds say they believe, more than doubt, the existence of a higher power of God, up from just one quarter in 2021. So there's this movement. There's this movement of people wanting to hear, wanting to respond, wanting to come to faith. And the reason why is because of the Lord of the harvest. It's because of the Lord of the harvest. We have to see that evangelism is primarily a God thing. It's a God thing. God is there. You say, well, how can people who are captive in sin, harassed and helpless come to faith? It's a God thing. In Acts 2.42, it says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The only way that people can come to faith is if God moves in their hearts, and that's the job of who? The Lord of the harvest. He's already going out there preparing hearts, preparing minds, preparing people to respond. We just simply need to go. As Paul says, I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And so really what we probably should be doing is be praying this, Lord, show me where you are already working so that I can go and be a laborer. Where you're already there drawing people. Yes, we need to pray for people to come to faith. But more often than not, people are coming to faith or wanting to come to faith. We just simply have to figure out how to get the message to them, how they can respond in that way. And so Jesus prays, asks us to pray earnestly for laborers amongst the people around us. Now, Jesus taught us how to pray, right? We see Jesus praying. I believe that this is the only prayer request of Jesus in the New Testament, where he asked his disciples, you guys need to pray about this. Pray that God earnestly sends out laborers in the harvest because the need is critical. It's not just pray, but pray earnestly. Pray earnestly for this. Time is of the essence. Time is of the essence. Now, in South Dakota, where I pastored my first church, um, from time to time, one of the farmers in our community would get ill about harvest time. And these guys understood that harvest is time of the essence. And so the community would get together and you would see lines of combines in the field. Time is of the essence. They were harvesting for their um, farmer friend who was sick and couldn't bring it in. And yet, again, the Lord of the harvest sends. I like that. It's not just we sending but the Lord of the harvest sends because ultimately 
the ability to go out and share the faith is also a God thing. That's why Jesus said, hey, don't even say anything until the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost and gives you the power to do that. It's a God-divine enablement. It's a God-divine enablement for people to come to faith. It's a God-divine enablement for us to share our faith. It's a God thing. So pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest sends out laborers in the harvest. Now you'll say, wait a second, I am not a gifted evangelist. And the answer is, well, neither am I. <laughs> neither am I. I'm primarily a pastor teacher. I've been involved in evangelism since I was involved in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship back in the 70s. And I've trained people how to do evangelism. And I've done evangelism myself, but I am not, what I would say, a gifted evangelist. And you don't have to be. Yes, God gave some people to be what? Pastors and teachers, prophets, apostles, and also evangelists. But what did he give evangelists to do? To equip God's people for works of service. And what kind of works of service do evangelists do? Or equipped for? To do evangelism. To do evangelism. So what we really need to be doing is praying that we see the crowds around us as ready to respond, pray that God raise up people in the church, evangelists, to equip God's people to do that work of evangelism. Not only just to do it themselves, because I'm telling you that people are more ready to respond than what we think. The fields, we need to stop seeing the world around us with stingy eyes and see with optimism the fields are white unto harvest. We just got to figure out how to get the message to them and be intentional to them. Stop just doing the work of the church and start doing what real church work is to reach the lost. I pray for this congregation, and next week I'm going to share with you a simple way, kind of a different paradigm on how to go about reaching people that just about anybody can do. I mean, it's just such a simple paradigm. And so I'm looking forward to the fact that this isn't just a one and done, that I can share with you some really practical ways that you can go out and share with people uh, in your community, your friends, your relatives, your neighbors. Uh, yes, we need to pray for them, but we also need to pray earnestly for laborers. We need to have that compassion for the crowd around us and see that they're ready to respond. We just seem to bring the message and let God, who is already working, finish that work he's already started. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you've already gone out in the world and you are moving people by your Spirit in ways that we can't even see, in ways that we don't understand, but yet you're working behind the scenes in people's hearts. Lord, I pray that we would look at the world around us with the compassion that Jesus saw. The crowds are harassed, they're helpless, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They need help. We have the message to bring to them, to give them help, to free them, and to know the love of Christ. I pray earnestly that you would motivate us and, and, and mobilize us to do that, 
so more and more people could come into your kingdom. And thank you for that promise that the fields are white on the harvest. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. The Bridge Bible Church stands to exalt the name of Jesus. We seek to be a community that gives glory to Christ above all things and welcomes all people to join us in worshiping Him. If you don't have a church home, consider visiting ours. We are ordinary people who want to live life with authentic faith. For more information on how to get connected, deepen your faith, and experience what God has for you, please visit our website at thebridgewire.com.